Well, if you have a Bible, if you'd open it to Genesis chapter 27. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you. It's the dark blue one. Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Uh, you'll notice uh, there's large, bold numbers. Those represent the chapters. The smaller numbers, uh, usually on the left-hand side, represent the, the verses. Those aren't original to the, the writing of the Bible. Just much later, people put those in, thinking it'd be much easier to find things that way. Uh, so I'm grateful they did that. Uh, and today, we're going to think about uh, Genesis chapter 27, starting in verse 1. And we're going to try and uh, consider all the way through chapter 29, verse 30. So we won't have time to read all of that uh, out loud. I'll read some sort of large chunks as we go along, Lord willing. But I think you'll be helped to have your Bible open so that you can see. I'll try to refer to, hey, there in verse 45, this happens without actually reading it. And you'll want to be able to take a look at that yourself. So uh, Genesis chapter 27, starting in verse 41. As we work our way through the book of Genesis and these passages, it can be helpful and I think it's important to keep in our minds the contexts in which these passages occur, especially as we're dealing with large chunks. It's really easy, I think, to be confused by uh, all the different individual trees that we consider in a given sermon uh, if you lose your sense of their relationship to the larger forest. So each particular passage that we consider uh, has a significance as part of the larger story of the book of Genesis, and even there, uh, then as part of the larger story of uh, the whole Bible. And I think remembering that can help us to stay oriented when we come to a passage like the one before us this morning. Uh, because in this passage, we are going to encounter a murder threat and a man accidentally marrying the wrong woman and the dream of a man who's using a rock for a pillow. And some of that might seem really random and strange. And if you just see it as a bunch of disconnected uh, trees... Uh, it might be confusing, and certainly there are a lot of strange things in this passage. But I think when we understand these events in light of the bigger story of Genesis and in light of the larger story of Scripture, I think we have a better shot of understanding what they mean and what we're supposed to take away from them. So to that end, I just want to remind you of two important themes that have come up repeatedly in the book of Genesis. And these themes are going to kind of form my outline uh, for this morning. And these themes, I think, will help us make sense of chapter 27 to 29. And those two themes are first, the theme of seed or, or offspring, and second, the theme of promise. The, seed, the theme of seed or offspring and the theme of promise. So let's consider those two things as we look at these stories. So first, the theme of seed. So again, here using the word seed to mean offspring or to indicate a certain line of descent. Uh, this theme really comes up for the first time in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 15. Remember that after Adam and Eve fell into disobedience and death, God pronounced a curse on the serpent, on the manifestation of the devil. So we read there in Genesis 3, verse 15, the Lord says to the evil one, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that is Eve. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What God is doing here is essentially declaring and describing a war that is going to unfold over the course of human history. God identifies two groups of people, 
the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the devil. And he says uh, that there is going to be enmity between these two groups of people up until the point where one of these offspring of the woman, he, God says, shall bruise your head, speaking to the serpent. This is a key thought for interpreting the book of Genesis and really the rest of the Bible. Because the way we see this conflict unfold in the book of Genesis, this, this war, if you will, spools out between the seed of the woman, the sort of godly offspring, and the seed of the serpent. The very first skirmish in this war takes place in Genesis chapter 4. The serpent apparently took God seriously and believed what he said because uh, immediately what we see is that Cain murders his brother Abel. Uh, the seed of the serpent is killing the seed of the woman. But it turns out that Abel wasn't the ultimate final offspring that God was going to send. Killing him didn't actually derail God's plan. It didn't end the war. But the woman had another child, Seth, and the godly line continued through him. A bit later in Genesis, God appears to a man named Abram and promises, among other things, to give him offspring through whom he would bless all the nations. Now, as we've seen in Genesis, there was a problem with that promise, and that is that, that Abram uh, and his wife, Sarai, were very old. They were unable to have children. And so Abraham, as he came to be known later, had a child named Ishmael by his servant's wife, or his wife's servant, Hagar. But what becomes clear is that Ishmael wasn't the seed that God had promised. Instead, God's plan was to give Abraham and Sarah a miraculous child. And that child would be the, the offspring through whom God's blessing would flow. That child, Isaac, went on to have twins by his wife, Rebekah. And as we saw last week, there's some surprise as to which one of these two boys is going to be the offspring, the seed, the one that stands in the line of Abraham's promise. Under normal circumstances in that culture, you'd expect it would be the older twin, Esau. But as we saw in chapter 25 last week, God chose the younger one, Jacob, instead. And that choice, again, as we saw last week, made clear that God's choice is sovereign that he chooses to bless some people according to his own pleasure and not according to anything in them. Jacob, the, the chosen one, is, is the younger brother in a culture where the older brother was favored. Jacob, as we saw last week, is not a good person. He's a liar and he's a cheat. But God chose him before Jacob and Esau were, were even born, just to show that his sovereign purpose in choosing would stand, God chose Jacob to be the one, to be the seed, to be the offspring through him, uh, through whom he would bring about his salvation. But that meant that God had quite a bit of work to do, a work which in many ways begins in our passage for this morning. If you look there in chapter 27, we see in verse 41 that our passage opens with these words. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now, since we're careful readers of Genesis, we know exactly what's happening here. Esau is taking his place in the line of the serpent. Right? He's calling plays out of the evil one's playbook. 
right? In John chapter 8, Jesus tells us that the devil has been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And so Esau is, is calling plays according to that strategy. Here he decides, as soon as my father Isaac is dead, as soon as it's sort of we're finished mourning him, I'm going to murder my brother. I'm going to murder the one that God has chosen. I'm going to murder the offspring that God has elected. But God's plan isn't so easily frustrated there in verse 42. Rebecca, the twin's mother, finds out about Esau's scheme. We saw last week she loved Jacob more than Esau. And so she sends Jacob away to find a wife. Now that raises a significant issue. Where exactly should Jacob find a wife? If you remember back in chapter 24, Abraham made a really big deal about the fact that Isaac, right, his seed, his offspring, right, the one through whom the promise will be conveyed, he made a really big deal in chapter 24 that Isaac should not get a wife from among the Canaanites. The Canaanites were known for being particularly wicked. And Abraham didn't want Isaac to be drawn away from the worship of the Lord by marrying one of them. And so Abraham sent a servant back to his homeland in Mesopotamia. And Rebekah became Isaac's wife. So now when it's time to find a wife for Isaac's offspring, for Isaac's seed, that same plan has to be followed. So there in verse 46 of chapter 27, we read this. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Back in chapter 26, we saw that Esau, the older brother, had taken for himself two Hittite women as his wives. And that's, again, a really bad sign about Esau's sort of spiritual condition for, for two reasons. First, uh, he married two women. And marriage is meant to be for one man and one woman. We've already seen that again in Genesis. Back in the creation narrative, we're told that the point of marriage is in many ways that the man and the woman, these two, will become one flesh. Uh, the first recorded polygamist in the Bible is a man named Lamech. If you remember him, he's a, a murderer and a braggart. And from really this point on, whenever we see a man married to more than one woman, it ends badly. And in fact, we're going to see Jacob marrying more than one woman before our passage is over. The second problem with Esau is that he's marrying Hittite women. These were Canaanites. The phrase that's rendered in our translation as Hittite literally means daughters of Heth. Now, Heth, as you almost certainly don't remember, is the son of Canaan, who was back in chapter 9 subject to Noah's curse. And so again, Esau's making it clear here that he's the, the seed of the serpent, that he's the offspring, spiritually speaking, of the evil one. He's joining himself in marriage. He's throwing his lot in with a cursed line. Now Esau does try to fix the situation in the most sort of Esau way possible. Right? He, he decides there in chapter 28 when he hears that, that Jacob has been sent away to, to marry uh, a member of the family, he decides, okay, well, that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. And so he, he goes to Ishmael's family, and he, he marries one of them as well. He just sort of adds on an extra wife as if that's going to sort of solve the problem. But Jacob, in contrast to his brother, he has to find a wife from the family line. So there at the beginning of chapter 28, in verses 1 to 2, we read this. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must 
not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So in response, uh, Jacob goes off to his uncle Laban's land, and he meets Laban's daughter, Rachel, at a well. So we see this in chapter uh, 29. Uh, we read there in chapter 29, starting in verse 13, about uh, Jacob's re meeting with Rachel, Laban's daughter. It says there, As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to the house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. Hold on to that phrase in your head for a second. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your, shall your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So the stage is set. Jacob has met Rachel at a well. He's smitten. He goes back to Laban, her father, his uncle. He says, I want to marry her. And Laban says, okay, great. Seven years service. There's normally a bride price that would be paid. Jacob doesn't appear to have any money. And so he agrees to serve Laban for seven years uh, in order to win Rachel's hand. What happens next is bananas. <laughs> Jacob did not take Laban seriously enough when he said, I am, yes, surely you are my bone and my flesh. Because Laban, it turns out, is cut from exactly the same cloth as Jacob. Jacob is a trickster and a swindler, and so is Laban. Because on the wedding night, instead of sending Rachel in to Jacob, there in verse 23, we read that Laban sends in Leah, the one with the weak eyes. And for some reason, perhaps it was simply the darkness of a world without artificial lighting, or maybe there's a bit too much wine at the celebration, but there in verse 25, Jacob doesn't realize that he's married Leah until the next morning. Surprise! The, the, the wording there in verse 25 is, is uh, almost comical. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> uh, Jacob, as you could imagine, files a complaint there in verse 25. And Laban's answer is almost comical. He says there in, in verse 26, it is not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. You know, information Jacob could have used seven years earlier. But there in verse 27 to 30, they arrive at a solution. That is, I would think, a less than ideal solution. They agree that Jacob will finish out the week of marriage and celebrating with Leah. And then at that point, a week later, he can marry Rachel, her sister in exchange for another seven years of service. I mean, you can imagine how well this is gonna go, but that's what they agree to do. There in verse 30 we read, so Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. 
So a whole lot of drama is going to flow out of that decision, but we're going to leave that for next week's sermon, Lord willing. For now, the main thing for us to see, the, the takeaway in terms of understanding this passage in the larger picture of the Bible, is, is that Jacob, the chosen offspring of the chosen offspring of Abraham, now has a wife. He actually has two wives with whom he will have more chosen offspring. That's the, the point of this sort of interaction in many ways. Jacob has to get a, a wife so that he can have more godly offspring. Now, before we move on to think about our next theme, the theme of promise, let me just pull just for a second on a thread that we see uh, as the Bible moves on. Because now we've seen this pattern of important people finding a wife at a well. So we saw Abraham's servant found Rebekah at a well. And, and we read that she was beautiful. She was a desirable bride for Isaac. And here Jacob finds Rachel at a well. And we read that she's beautiful. She was a desirable bride. As the Bible goes on, we're going to see that Moses finds his wife at a well also. And so much later in the Bible, we see Jesus, the offspring with a capital O, right? When God said, he will crush your head to the serpent. Jesus is the he, right? We see Jesus, Abraham's offspring, the one who will bring all of God's promises to fruition. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus meet a woman at a well. And as alert Bible readers, as people who have studied Genesis, we know what's coming. He's going to find someone beautiful. He's going to find someone who will make a suitable wife for him. Now, Jesus isn't looking for a wife, obviously. He never married in his earthly life. But the church is pictured as Christ's bride. So as the youth think tonight about the point of marriage, they're, they're going to be thinking about the truth in, Bible, in the Bible that marriage is meant to serve as a picture for our relationship as God's people to Christ. And so we're left to wonder, as Jesus meets a woman at a well, what kind of bride does Jesus want? Who is his Rebecca or his Rachel? Who does Jesus find lovely enough that he would want, he would want her for his own? Surely it's got to be someone beautiful, someone lovely. But what Jesus does there and the person that he meets there is is a scandalously promiscuous Samaritan woman. He meets an outcast who had to go to the well in the middle of the day when no one else was around. It turns out that's the kind of person that Jesus chooses to be part of his bride, to be part of his church, part of his people. We're not ready for that. Spiritually speaking, Jesus chooses the Leah, not the Rachel when he goes to the well in John chapter 4. And so, friends, spiritually speaking, you might think of yourself as unattractive. Maybe you think, yeah, God just couldn't love someone like me. People like me are not allowed to be Christians. Right? Maybe, so for example, I knew at, a, at an early age that I was never going to play in the NBA. Right? I liked basketball, but that didn't really matter. Right? I couldn't jump high enough. I couldn't run fast enough. I couldn't shoot well enough. And so certain things are just off limits to people like me. Maybe you feel like being a Christian is like that. You'd like to be, but we'd all like to be things that we're not. And, and you're just not good enough. 
Friend, maybe you feel like Jesus couldn't possibly want someone like you because he's looking for people who are lovely. But the good news is that when Jesus came, he didn't come looking for Rebecca's and Rachel's. He came looking for people like you and me, people like this Samaritan woman that he met at a well, people who aren't morally or spiritually attractive. Those are the people that Jesus chooses to be his bride. And so don't let your sense of your own unworthiness keep you away from Jesus. We're moving on to our second theme for this morning, and that is the promise. If you've been here for the past couple of months, you, you know the story of Abraham and the story of his family is shaped by the promise that God made to him and the promise that God repeated over and over again. So in chapter 12 of Genesis, God calls Abraham and he promises to make him a great nation and to give him the land of Canaan and to bless all the nations through him. In Genesis 15, God appears again to him and he promises countless descendants and he promises again all the land of the Canaanites. In Genesis 17, God again promises Abraham that he will be the father of nations and that his descendants will possess the land. In Genesis 20, God makes it clear that the offspring God has promised will come through Isaac, not Ishmael. In Genesis 22, God reaffirms his promise in light of Abraham's obedience, his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. In Genesis 26, God communicates his promise directly to Isaac no longer going through Abraham, but now he speaks directly to Isaac, making it clear that this promise will transfer through the generations. And then finally last week, we saw Jacob cut in line in front of Esau. Jacob wound up being the one who receives the promise. Jacob turns out to be the one, the, the offspring through whom the promise will be realized. And really, that's what sets the action in our passage in motion. We've already seen in chapter 27, verse 41, that Esau wants to kill his brother because of this blessing. And then at the beginning of chapter 28, as, as, as he goes, or I'm sorry, before he goes off to find a wife, Isaac repeats the blessing. He makes it clear that this blessing that God gave to Abraham and then communicated to him is now for Jacob. Look there in Genesis 28, verses 3 to 4. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So the blessing given to Abraham, given to Isaac, will go to Jacob. But there is just one really significant problem once, once Jacob has a wife, then he can have more offspring and, and we're ready to go. But there's one really big problem with Jacob inheriting this promise. And that is to this point, he doesn't seem to have any interest in or any relationship with the Lord. To this point, all we know about Jacob is that he is a liar and a schemer. J.I. Packer summarizes it well. He says, Jacob was a self-willed mama's boy, blessed or cursed with all the opportunistic instincts and amoral ruthlessness of a go-getting businessman. Jacob's whole attitude to life was ungodly and needed changing. Jacob must be weaned away from his trust in his own cleverness to dependence on God. 
and he must be made to abhor the unscrupulous double-dealing which came so naturally to him. Right, it's going to be hard to see how it is that Jacob can be the heir of God's promise if he's a dishonest liar, if he has no interest in walking with the Lord as his God. And so while he's on his way to Laban's house, God intervenes and he begins the process of necessary change in Jacob's life. So if you look there in Genesis 28, starting in verse 10, let me read this section to you. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in, the way, in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So set the scene here in your mind. Uh, Jacob is utterly without family and friends. There's no indication that he even had a servant with him. He's fleeing because his brother wants to kill him. And it's not at all clear if this plan to go and find a wife is actually going to work. And so he stops in a certain place for the night. Uh, the, the wording there makes it seem like he, he just stopped at a random place. Whenever the sun set, he stopped where he was. When it got too late to continue traveling, and it's there, as he slept alone, exposed to the elements, to wild animals, with his head on a rock, utterly alone in the world, it's there that God came to him in a dream. In verse 12, we read that Jacob saw a ladder. The Hebrew word there actually indicates something more like a flight of steps. Uh, most scholars seem to think that what Jacob saw was something like a tower or a, a ziggurat with steps sort of climbing up the side. Uh, we read there these stairs were set on the earth and they reached all the way up into heaven. And these steps were occupied. There was traffic on them. There were, 
There in verse 12, we read that the angels of the Lord were ascending and descending on this ladder, on these steps. And so it seems like this ladder, this staircase, is meant to indicate a connection between heaven and earth. And again, as astute readers of Genesis, we've already seen this. Right back in chapter 11, we saw Babel, where rebellious humanity wanted to build a tower on earth that would reach the sky and allow people to ascend into heaven. The Lord frustrated that plan, but, but here he shows Jacob that, that this connection between heaven and earth already exists. The, the realm of heaven is connected to the realm of earth by this great staircase, and business is being transacted in both directions. Messengers, that's what the word angel means, are, are, are traveling up and down, going from earth to heaven and from heaven to earth. We read there that the Lord stood above this ladder. Uh, the Hebrew wording there could also mean that the Lord stood with him next to Jacob. So one of those two is, is the case. But wherever he's standing, the Lord repeats his promise yet again. He promises Jacob land there in verse 13. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. He promises to make Jacob a great nation. There in verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. He promises to make Jacob's descendants a blessing to the world. There in verse 14, in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Everything that he promised to Abraham, everything that the Lord promised to Isaac, here in this dream, he promises directly to Jacob. Look at how the Lord identifies himself there in verse 13. He says, I am the God of Abraham, your father, and Isaac. Now, up until this point, I think that's all the Lord was to Jacob. The Lord was his grandfather's God. The Lord was his father's God. The Lord was someone Jacob had grown up hearing all about, but he wasn't somebody that Jacob knew personally. He wasn't Jacob's God, at least not yet. But there in verse 15, the Lord pledges himself to Jacob. He says, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. See, God promises to be present with Jacob. He promises to keep him as he traveled and even to bring him back to this land. He promised not to leave him. And Jacob reciprocates there in verses 20 to 21, saying in essence that if God is going to do all of this for him, then the Lord shall be my God. No longer his father's God, no longer one of his, the one his grandfather spoke of, but Jacob's God. It could be that there's some some hedging of bets there, right? Jacob says, if the Lord does all of these things. Uh, it could be that Jacob wasn't fully convinced. He wasn't fully bought in yet, but we'll see, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks that, that God will close the deal uh, in just a little bit. But for now, I wonder if, if you're here and you're a young person this morning, if you're one who's grown up in a family like Jacob, where your parents maybe even your grandparents, know the Lord as their God. 
Maybe you've heard about him your whole life. But if you're honest, it could be that you haven't yet embraced him and acknowledged him as your God. Like Jacob, maybe you've walked through your life unaware that God was in this place, as Jacob says there in verse 16. Unaware that God has been with you, that God has been caring for you. Perhaps, young people, you haven't entered into a relationship with God yet. You haven't taken hold of the promises that he makes to all of his people. If that's you, then perhaps considering this interaction between Jacob and the Lord can be the thing that spurs you on to make the God of your parents your God today. You see, this vision that Jacob has, it was a picture of God's great kindness, of God's protection for Jacob, of God's love for Jacob that had been with him his whole life, even though he hadn't known it and he hadn't embraced it and he hadn't earned it. To Jacob, this random place where the sunset was empty. It was desolate. What he didn't see was that God's angels were constantly ministering to him, going up and down between heaven and earth in order to care for him, in order to carry out God's plan. This, this ladder, this staircase, this tower was a picture of the genuine connection that God has made between heaven and earth. It's a picture of God's love and uninterrupted fellowship with Jacob. And so now here in verse 16, Jacob realizes that the Lord has been here all along, that the Lord has been with him the whole journey, and he didn't know it. Doubtlessly, he up to this point had felt distant and disconnected from God. Surely he felt like he was all alone out there in the wilderness with zero connection between where he was and the heavens. Surely from this place, there could be no access to God. But it turns out nothing could be further from the truth. Even in this place, the, re the remoteness of which is enforced by the repetition here in the text of that word place, right? It's just a place. It's where he was when the sun set. Even in this random place, God is present. And there's a way to heaven. Friends, do you see how kind God is to Jacob? God gives him a visible picture of a spiritual reality. That God is with him. That God loves him. That God's taking care of him. That they're in fellowship. That there's a connection between them. Friend, maybe you can see for the first time today what Jacob saw for the first time that night. That God has been with you all along. Well, the rest of our time this morning, let me just point out briefly two things to notice about this dream that Jacob has, and particularly about the promise that he receives. First, notice that this promise comes to him by God's gracious initiative. Jacob was not out there in the wilderness seeking a blessing from the Lord. He wasn't a religious pilgrim out there in the desert. He wasn't even a prodigal son returning in repentance. He was a schemer running for his life. And so it's in that context, it's in that situation that God comes to him. God pursues him. God comes out, as it were, to meet him with an angelic company. He even waits for Jacob to fall asleep. Jacob wasn't even conscious 
let alone seeking after God. Jacob doesn't do anything. He's just laying there with his head on a rock. He's not even the one climbing up and down the ladder. God sends his angels down the ladder to him. God, the sovereign chooser, the almighty savior, has graciously come to Jacob. And look at how he comes to him. Did he lecture Jacob? Did he put him on probation? Did he make sure that it was really clear that that God was displeased with the way Jacob had lived his life up to this point? Not at all. No verbal hand slap, no word of reproach, no word of demand. Simply, I am the Lord. And then a string of loving and kind promises that Jacob doesn't deserve. So friends, we ought to marvel at the grace of God, that God blesses scoundrels and weasels and sinners like Jacob and like you and like me because it pleases him to do so. He blesses those kinds of people because forgiving those kinds of people, saving those kinds of people, restoring those kinds of people to fellowship with him brings him great glory and honor. Right? If God were a God who blessed those who deserved it, First of all, he'd have no one to bless. But second of all, it would bring him no glory. It would simply speak well of us. Right? If God blessed Jacob because of how lovely and holy and righteous he was, then God would get little glory. He'd simply be saying, Jacob, you're amazing. But out here in the desert, loving this kind of miserable fugitive, that's amazing grace. That's the hound of heaven pursuing bad people who find themselves in bad situations. Friends, how wonderful that God is not ashamed to call himself the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And now he's not ashamed to call himself the God of Jacob. God's actions in this passage are all of grace. The second thing for us to notice is that God extends this same grace to us today in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is not ashamed to be called the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And perhaps even more shockingly, he's not ashamed to be called our God as well. See, for many centuries, this story just kind of sits here in the Bible. And if you were an Israelite during the time of the judges or during the reign of King David or during the exile, my guess is that you had no idea what to make of this passage. It probably felt a little bit like the story of Melchizedek earlier in Genesis. Like, that's weird and it's interesting, but I don't know what we're doing with it. But then one day, around 25, maybe 30 AD, the Lord Jesus called a man named Philip to be one of his disciples. And Philip told one of his friends, Nathanael, about Jesus. And we read what happens next in John chapter 1. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip goes to Nathanael and is like, Hey, we figured out who Genesis is about. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a, a term Jesus used to speak of himself. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's telling Nathaniel, stick around. You're going to see heaven open. And you're going to see God's angels ascending and descending, not on a flight of stone steps, but on me. Jesus is saying, Nathaniel, you're looking at Jacob's ladder. Jesus himself is the connection between heaven and earth. As God... His home is in the heavens. Jesus is enthroned there on the praises of the angels. His voice is welcomed and heard in that place. And when he took on flesh and he became one of us, he stood with us with his feet firmly planted on the earth next to us. And Jesus is the staircase by which we can go to heaven and by which all of heaven's blessings can descend to us. When we pray, our prayers climb the steps of this staircase. When God's blessings come down to us, they descend the, the steps of this staircase. Friends, can you see how good this news is? If you are in Christ, heaven is open to you. You are Welcome there anytime. You can go there in prayer and in worship anytime you'd like. You can always count on the help that you need from God coming down to you from above. Right? The pipeline of grace from heaven will never be hacked, never be compromised. Your sin can't stop it. Your failure and weakness can't destroy it. As long as Jesus stands as our ladder... As long as he is our stairway, we can be sure that we are always welcome in heaven and that we will always receive all that we need from God. But the story isn't finished there in John chapter 1. Jesus tells Nathaniel, you will see something greater. And in fact, John chapter 1 is only the beginning because it's at the cross that Jesus finally takes his place as Jacob's ladder, as he serves ultimately as the bridge between God and man, as he serves as the mediator who connects heaven and earth. Because on the cross, Jesus took on himself all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt and rebellion. And it was through his death and resurrection that he did away with everything that might block our access to God, that might keep us from having a relationship with him. You see, at Babel, mankind tried to climb its way up to God. But at the cross, we see that God has descended to us to save us. Do you remember what we saw a few months back in Matthew's account of the crucifixion? There in chapter 27, verse 54, 
We read that when the centurion, so the one, the Roman soldier at the foot of the cross as Jesus was being crucified, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. Again, it kind of reminds you of Jacob's response there in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 28. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Jacob has this dream and he realizes that God has been powerfully present with him. That the heavens are open to receive him. And that he didn't know it the whole time. In the same way this centurion and the others see Jesus die for our sins. And he comes to the same conclusion. I've been in God's presence this whole time. The, the gate of heaven is open, and I didn't know it. So friends, that leads us, I think, naturally into our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Because we come to the Lord's table together to remember and to celebrate the love that God has shown to us in the death of Jesus for our sins. Brothers and sisters, if Jacob responds to his dream there in verses 18 to 22 of chapter 28, if he responds with joyful worship, how much more should those of us who have by faith had our eyes opened to see Jesus, the true stairway to heaven, how much more should those of us who have heard God claim us as his own, who have heard God say, I am with you and I will be with you, how much more should we respond with worship and love and awe and joy? So let's go to God now in prayer, and then let's celebrate the supper together. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. And we delight in your grace and mercy that you pursue lost, sinful people like us, that you're not ashamed to be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of people like us. Lord Jesus, we love you and we are so full of joy when we consider that you are our staircase to heaven, that because of you, we will never be shut out. God's blessings will never be cut off. Our prayers will never be rejected. Lord Jesus, thank you for taking our sin on yourself. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us. We pray for those in our midst that don't know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, that have not embraced you as their God, and we pray that, Spirit, you would give them eyes to see what they can't see right now and hearts that love what they don't love at the moment. We pray that you would help us to have joy, that we would love and worship in light of all that we've seen in your word. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.